You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Chapter 21, verses 7 through 40. If you want to take a minute to find that, I'll be reading from the ESV. Once again, that's Acts 21, 7 through 40. And also there should be um, Bibles in the pews. Um, But take a minute to find that. Please stand for the reading of God's word. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him from and deliver him unto the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am for I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves among them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, We have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified them. He purified himself among with them and went into the temple 
giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, from him in the, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, sorry, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. This is the word of God for the people of God. All right, we're continuing in our sermon series in the book of Acts. And Acts, uh, the book of Acts, the book of the actions of not so much the apostles, but the actions of Jesus. Uh, part two of the Luke-Acts uh, single book. Uh, last week I said that it was actually written as one manuscript. Uh, but then uh, Austin said that his teacher at seminary said it was actually two books written separately in time. And so um, I'm not really, I think scholars debate that. Uh, but actually the more historical tradition is that uh, Luke was written, uh, and then um, it's split between Luke and Acts by John. So uh, Luke and then John Acts. So uh, let's assume it's two books. But either way, certainly the author Luke was thinking that um, this is the same story. It's the same story, the same main character. Uh, Jesus is the main character, whether he is on earth or in the book of Acts. As soon as the, the action begins, he, um, he actually ascends into heaven. And I keep saying that it's... Don't think of it as like a rocket ship going into outer space. It's ascending into heaven, is moving onto the other side uh, of the visible realm, into the invisible realm where the real magic happens. It's like the upside down and Stranger Things. It's a whole parallel realm to this one, and uh, it's going on all the time behind the scenes. And like I said earlier, uh, Jesus rules from that place, and the whole book of Acts is about how he is spreading his kingdom around the Roman Empire. And it is a kingdom that in 300 years will, will overturn the Roman Empire, will actually become uh, more powerful than the Roman Empire. 
uh, something that no historian could have ever imagined. Uh, but the book of Acts is really just a way of showing how um, over and over again the church is witnessing to the reign of Christ. The church, we are um, a little witness. We're a little community that shows what uh, the real king is like. This is the real politics, the way that we live as a church. And so Paul is, a, is the primary, he's a supreme witness to the way of the king. Uh, the book of Acts really in the second half is all about Paul. And now we're moving into the last, um, the last third of Acts, which is all about this. He's on trial. From this point on, he's on trial, the entire book. And so Paul has been the primary witness since Acts chapter 13. We saw him uh, in Lystra, in Philippi, in Athens, in Ephesus. And every time there are these riots that appear, always a riot. Whenever he preaches the gospel, a riot occurs. And yet in the middle of that riot, he's always moving into the riot to witness to uh, the suffering love of Christ. And he does that again today. In fact, this is kind of the supreme, final, uh, climactic witness to Christ. Scholars compare it to the uh, approach of Jesus to Jerusalem in all of the Gospels. Paul is almost like replaying that same story as he, he, as he walks his way up to uh, Jerusalem. So this is the end of his missionary journeys. Now he's heading back to his home of Jerusalem. Uh, he was born in Tarsus, but he lived most of his life in Jerusalem. And he knows that in going there, he's going to face intense persecution and pain. He says he's ready to die in order to witness to the reality and supremacy of Christ. So I want to look at, number one, uh, just the longing that is in his heart, the desire, the passion to be a witness. And number two, uh, the way that he witnesses. That he witnesses to a certain type of living, to a certain way. And it's, uh, it's, it's how, he goes, how we go about witnessing says so much about the message we witness to. Um, if you are witnessing to the gospel with pride and arrogance and self-righteousness, um, if you're witnessing in a way that you come across as superior or holier than thou, then inherently you're not witnessing to the king, no matter what you say after that. It's not the right, it's not the witness to the king. So I want to look at the way he does it. Uh, first, just the desire to be a witness. And then second, um, the witness to the certain way of the king of kings. So um, we last left Paul in uh, Ephesus and he traveled down uh, past Troas and Miletus, that was last week's sermon, and he wants to get to Jerusalem at Pentecost, because that's where the largest number of people will be there, because he wants to come and he wants to speak to the largest number of people possible that are Jewish. That's what he wants to do. And he's bringing with him all of this money, a huge amount of money, uh, from all of the Gentile churches where he collected money, because he knows that there's a famine in Jerusalem. And he thinks, if I can bring them money from the Gentiles, then maybe they will welcome the Gentiles in as brothers. And we can now reconcile Jew and Gentile and have one new humanity. That's his goal. And he actually brings a lot of Gentiles, too, with him. Like Trophimus the Ephesian. It actually has a list of the name of the Gentiles. But it's like he's bringing them an offering of all the Gentiles from these different churches. Uh, but as he's moving towards Jerusalem, he goes down the coast of Turkey, south uh, on the west coast of Turkey, Then he crosses the Mediterranean. He comes to Caesarea Philippi, where Cornelius was. So he's probably come to the same church where Cornelius was. He's kind of coming back around. And while he's at Caesarea, and that's the port, that's the port city where you get to Jerusalem. So he's about to go south up the hill to Jerusalem. But while he's in Caesarea in verse 10, uh, this prophet named Agabus, he comes down from Jerusalem. 
sent by the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit send Agabus to tell Paul? This is surprising. Uh, A lot of commentators didn't know what to do with this. But it seems like he comes to dissuade Paul from going. He's coming there to tell Paul, don't do this. Because if you look in verse 11, and this is kind of a move from uh, the prophet Ezekiel. He does stuff like this in the book of Ezekiel a lot. But but he takes off his belt. Uh, He takes off Paul's belt. Or he tells Paul, give me your belt. Uh, He takes that belt. Uh, he bounds Paul's hand and feet, kind of like hogtied. So he puts his hand and feet together. He ties the belt around them. And then he tells Paul, as he is tied up in this position uh, of total vulnerability and paralysis, he says, the Spirit says to me that if you go down Jerusalem, this is going to happen to you. You're going to be completely imprisoned. And uh, you will not be able to move. And uh, it's kind of like showing graphic images of a surgery before a patient is about to go under the knife. I mean, what is God doing here? You know, why is he showing Paul what's going to happen to him? And it actually, to make matters worse, Luke and his friends just add to Paul's anguish in verse 12. Because Luke and his friends say, when we heard this, this prophesy, uh, prophesying from Agabus, when we heard this, Luke says, we all urged him not to go. And uh, they're weeping, Um, they're um, begging him to not go down, stay in Caesarea, or go back, do another Gentile tour. But if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be in prison, you probably will never get out. And so again, I say, like, why is Paul doing this? Why why is God doing this? Why would God make it harder on Paul? Uh, Why would he, you know, put this stop sign up? Uh, and I thought a lot about this. That what I came up with, I think, is that what God is doing is showing both Paul and them, this is what you've got to go through to do what you're going to do. It's kind of like the way Jesus, when he's going down to Jerusalem, he says, I, I know what I'm going to do. He tells his disciples very clearly, he says, I'm going down to Jerusalem to be killed, to be tortured and mocked and sped upon and killed. And I want you to know that I'm going down there so that you will know I'm going down there of my own free will. I'm laying down my life freely. And I think that's what God wants Paul to know, and he wants Luke to know, he wants the church of Caesarea to know that Paul is walking into hell, in a sense, to tell them Jesus reigns and he loves you. And he he wants them to know the good news. It's like saying Ukraine wins or Putin surrenders. It's It's such good news that Paul cannot restrain himself from telling them that news, even though he knows what's going to happen to him. And it's not this kind of undesirable duty. He's not going in there as like a stoic philosopher. Uh, it's his deep passion to do this. Look at verse 13. Uh, you see how uh, his yearning for his people just shatters him. He says, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. So that he's so torn because he loves his people. Uh, he doesn't want to go and die. But he'd rather go and witness than stay alive. Romans 9, 2, which he wrote about a month before this. He he wrote the book of Romans right before uh, he went down to Jerusalem. And in Romans 9, chapter 1, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for my brothers and sisters that are Jewish. He says, I could wish that I myself would be cut off from Christ in a curse if only they would believe. I mean, this is probably the greatest passion of his life, that he is in deepest anguish for his brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says in verse 13, I am ready to be in prison. I am ready to die in Jerusalem just to get a chance to talk to them about the gospel. And it's just so convicting to me to think about uh, what he was willing to go through to be able to give a chance to say to someone, 
Uh, there is such good news for you. I have such good news to tell you. I got this chance, uh, once in a lifetime chance last week, uh, to witness to Jesus to a, to a large group of people that I've known my whole life, most of them cousins, uh, friends of the family, professors I grew up with, in Wake Chapel, uh, at Wake Forest University, my dad's funeral. I had prayed for decades for many of these people. And to be able to stand up in front of this pulpit and tell all of them at once uh, that God loves them was just an incredible opportunity. When I got to tell them that the grace of Jesus is so amazing that he stooped down to the very bottom to reach my dad, who did nothing at all uh, except resist God his whole life. And then God, at the last minute, took him into his very self, his very heart. Um, that is one of the greatest moments of my life. And when people ask me, uh, how am I doing with my dad's death, I always say I'm still just uh, basking in the glory of the way my dad's life was a witness to Christ in the end. And so I just wonder, you know, do we have that longing to do that? And do we, um, do we ever have chances to do that? And if you have done it, you know that you feel the power of, you feel the power of the Holy Spirit rushing through you. Because it's not a human endeavor. It's greater than a human endeavor. And it's like getting to tell someone something like, you know, it's not cancer. Or we got engaged. Or it's a boy. You know, whatever it is. We're pregnant. Um, it's this news you're telling people that Jesus reigns. That the, the king of the universe, the one that is in charge of the universe, is such a loving, good, gracious, tender, merciful God. And that that's the one who is in control of things. That's really good news. So that's number one, that uh, Paul had this longing to witness to Christ, such a, such a longing that he knew he was going to go down there and be imprisoned and maybe die, and he was like, I'm going anyway. That doesn't hinder me at all. So that's the first point, this longing. The second point is the way he does it, which is the way of the king. Like I said, there's no way to witness to the king if you're not witnessing in the way of the king, which is what Paul does. So first of all, look at verse 24. James tells Paul, after he's been really nice to Paul, and the you know, Jerusalem church welcomes Paul, they glorify God for what Paul has done, but then they tell him the bad news. And the bad news is, James says, Paul, uh, verse 24, you're going to have to take these four men and purify yourself with them and pay their expenses. I don't know exactly what this ritual is, but it's certainly something about keeping the law down to the smallest detail. Basically, James is saying, uh, all these Jewish people think that you are a, a lawbreaker, Paul. They think that you are actually teaching the Gentiles to disrespect the law. They think you're teaching Jews to disrespect the law. So you've got to prove to them that you will keep the law in the smallest detail for yourself and then pay for these other four people also. So, verse 26, Paul took four men and the next day he went to the temple and he purified himself. He paid for their purification. And I just think about Paul, who is the, um, the apostle to the Gentiles, the man who wrote Galatians, who said, uh, you're saved by grace alone, not by the law. This is the man that fought for the Gentiles in Antioch when they were being forced to be circumcised. He said, no way. He would not let anyone put the yoke of the law on a Gentile. He knows that the gospel says we are free from the law. You do not have to obey the law to be saved. And yet Paul is willing, for the sake of witness, to keep the law to the smallest detail and go and be purified with these people. And that must have been like eating crow for him, to have to do that. 
It almost like it undermines his whole message. But he's willing to do it just to get into the temple and get a hearing. So he's sitting there for seven days like a sitting duck, silently waiting. And then verse 27, sure enough, uh, on the last day, the Jews from Asia saw him in the temple and they stirred up the whole crowd and they laid hands on him and they attacked him. Now the Jews from Asia are the ones in the, uh, the different synagogues from Lystra and uh, Derby, Iconium, um, probably from Ephesus. That's what these are. They've all come from, from their synagogues in Asia to Pentecost, to Jerusalem and Pentecost. And now they're, they're looking at the man they tried to kill in all those other cities and they see him and now they're stirring up the crowd again. Another riot. Um, and, and notice in verse 28 how totally misunderstood he is. There's no trial. There's swift condemnation. They say, this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere to despise the law. That's what the Jews from Asia are saying. That, that Paul is trying to get people to stop obeying the law. And Paul is thinking to himself, no, I am doing the exact opposite. My whole life is to get Gentiles to keep the law. His whole desire in life is to get the Gentiles to learn how to love God and love their neighbor. Which is the essence of the law. Not... He's saying you don't have to to keep the law to be saved. But my whole goal is to have you actually want to keep the law and to fulfill the law. You know, love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It is not resentful. That's what Paul says love is. And even to the church of Corinth, he writes that to say that's what it means to fulfill the law. I want to see these people who are pagans, who know nothing about God, learning to love and fulfill the law. And these Jews from Asia are saying he's trying to despise the law and tear down the law. And you can just imagine the, the anguish of being so misunderstood. And uh, verse 30, you know, he's not even allowed to get a word in. The whole city was stirred up. The people ran at him. They seized him. They beat him. They dragged him away to kill him. I mean, it's so violent that the bad guys, the Roman guards, they're the bad guys. It's such a violent mob that the bad guys have to come in and and save Paul and protect him. Verse 35, he was actually carried on the shoulders of the soldiers because the violence of the crowd was so great. So they're like sharks just jumping out of the water trying to get to him. And the soldiers have to carry him on their shoulders to get him out of the temple. And this is the way of the king. This is what Paul knew that... The word witness and the word martyr are the same in Greek. So to be under, misunderstood, uh, to be attacked violently, um, to be slandered, to be screamed at, that's what it means to show people Jesus. That's, that's his style. That's the way he works. That's the way Jesus always did it. And, you know, I hate being misunderstood. Even to be misunderstood... Um, even by my wife, Margie, I get, if she is like slow to understand the story I'm trying to tell and um, she's not quite getting what I'm saying, I get frustrated. I can't imagine having my reputation shredded by like a Twitter mob that takes a quote out of context and then puts that out to see the whole, for the whole world to see. I can't imagine the frustration of Paul. Or I get angry when like um, someone really close to me misunderstands what I'm saying and intentionally kind of holds on to their misunderstanding, their misinterpretation, and they won't let it go, that really gets me upset. I cannot imagine this whole crowd screaming obscenities at you for something you've never even thought to do, never done. But again, this is the way 
of the master. This is the way of the king, is to um, just take that, to not defend yourself. Paul um, says at the very end of the passage, I know it kind of left on a cliffhanger there, uh, but at the end of the passage, he doesn't defend himself. When he says, I want to make a defense to you, what he defends is the glory of Christ. He doesn't defend himself at all. All he wants to do is tell his people about their Messiah. And that's what Acts 22 is. So Paul has now been rescued from the temple. He's in the fortress of the Romans. They built the fortress right next to the temple because there were so many riots in the temple. The Romans actually built their fortress right next to the temple. The guards have saved Paul uh, from the mob in the temple. Now he's in the fortress. And then verse 37, Paul says to the guard, uh, may I say something to you? Very polite. That's part of the way of Christ. Is That's the way of witnessing, just being considerate. And the, the guard's like, whoa, you, I didn't know you knew Greek. I thought you were that Egyptian terrorist that uh, gathered all those people to destroy the temple. And Paul says, I beg you, verse 39, permit me to speak to the people. And you know the guard is shocked, thinking, the people want to kill you. Why would you possibly go back through that door and talk to them? You know, they're, they're in there. They want to end your life. They want to rip you to shreds. But Paul persists. Like he did um, in every other city he went to. Whenever there was a mob, he would always try to run right back into the mob. He's ready to face anything to see that the way of Jesus prevails. That he is Lord and that he rules the the universe. Last week I uh, ended with an illustration that I regretted afterwards. Um, I took one of the most vulnerable groups uh, and made them the bad guys in the illustration. And I said last week that elders should be chief repenters, so I am repenting. And uh, this week I'm going to make my cousins the bad guys uh, instead. Um, so if, if, if any cousin is listening to this right now, uh, forgive me, this is just hypothetical. But I was thinking that um, after speaking at Wake Chapel and after um, my cousins hearing me, uh, I can't imagine going into the reception and like listening to them mock me. Like, what if I went there and I heard them just whispering and, you know, snickering, uh, kind of sneering about how stupid what Ben said was. Uh, that would be really hard. I can't imagine if they, like, would post that on social media to destroy my reputation. You know, if I saw that, I don't think I'd ever want to see them again. I'd be so wounded and hurt. I was just thinking, what if I um, actually showed up at their next Polly's Island gathering, these cousins? They've always intimidated me. What if I showed up at the gathering and walked right into the room while they're gossiping about me, and I just stood there, cleared my throat, waited for them to turn to me, and said, I want to tell you one more time that Jesus loves you. And I don't care what you think about me. I want you to know that Christ loves you. And that's exactly what uh, Jesus did uh, through this meal. Um, This is really the ultimate witness to who he is. Because it was at the moment uh, that we were at our very worst uh, that his love
remember, we love these rascals. <laughs>